Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, this is 101 Part-Time Jobs Podcast, the only podcast in the world where I interview bands and musicians about their time between making records, between going on tour, 
how they've survived up in their head and physically and stories from those times. I'm so excited to welcome Ed Robertson from the jolly Canadian rock band Bare Naked Ladies. Bare Naked Ladies 16th studio album Detour de Force is coming out next Friday. That's the 16th of July. Beneath this is the track Flip. I can't wait for the record. The videos have been amazing and I know there's a lot of you out there looking forward to it. We get a touch deep on this. It was great to chat to him and I hope you dig it. I hope you enjoy our chat. Thank you so much for everyone who subscribes. This is the 110th show and I love nothing more than making this happen every week. So cheers for joining me. East London Signature Brew have been making beers with bands since 2011. They've made beers with Mastodon, Idols, Sports Team, recently Hot Chip. If you go to their website, signaturebrew.co.uk and make an order to get beers delivered directly to your door, that's UK only, you can get 10% off by using the voucher code 101podcast at checkout. That's all capital letters. All right, here's Ed Robertson from Bare Naked Ladies on 101 Part-Time Jobs. Go well. Can't understand it for you, but I'll try to explain. Come on, flip. So this this podcast, I mean the the premise behind it is speaking to bands, more often than not up and coming bands about the jobs they've had between tours, the the you know the the work by day, play by night, and of course that's not the case, you know, for you, you know, over thirty years, an extremely successful. Um, fruitful career, loads of stuff in there, your own ice cream flavor, in fact. I mean, <laughs> when you look over the last 30 plus years, I mean, what, you know, are there any things that you can attest to the to the fact, you know, maybe mindsets that you've had or particular moments that you can really kind of look at and, and see that's helped you along your way? Well, you know, I, I'm actually analyzing a lot of that stuff um, lately because my, my 21 year old son is, uh, has got a band going and I'm trying to think, well, what advice do I give someone who's starting a band now? And the one thing, uh, I said to Lyle and that I think is important is take every gig, like <laughs> bare naked ladies took every single show we were offered for 20 years we always thought that uh you know that the next show was going to be our break and and uh possibly lead us to the next milestone and you know so you play tree planting ceremonies you play at the openings of new bakeries (laughs) in the mall you take every opening gig you can get you play your mom's work christmas party uh, in the mm-hmm. hopes that, you know, someone in that crowd also knows someone who books a little music festival or whatever. Um, but yeah, right. play live as much as possible. And that's so interesting about your son because the music industry is so, it's changing all the time. Uh, but it seems like a different world now being in a young band to what it would have been in 91. Well, sure. I mean, I I think he has access to tools that we never had, and I'm certainly watching him make completely professional-sounding recordings here at home. Uh, so that's right. amazing. But the flip side of that is there's so much more noise because everybody has all those tools and everybody has access to uh, Instagram and Facebook. And, you know, the real mm-hmm. job now is to cut through the noise. 
And I've read, you know, speaking about picking up all the shows you can, I've, I've read some, you know, funny anecdotes from you speaking about you and Stephen playing acoustic around college, just taking these things. And, and that's where you found, you know, well, you, you tell me, but that's where I've read, that's where you sort of found your, the facts where that, you know, the, the, the humor can coincide with the music, which is obviously such a big part of the band. Well, it, it's certainly the way we related to each other and, and the way we related to an audience. I think we've always been in sort of, uh, it's difficult for people to understand the band because we take the music super seriously. We just never took ourselves very seriously. And so that confused a lot of people like, oh, like, is this a joke or like what? what actually is this thing? And then we'd sing a beautiful song with nice harmonies. And I think anybody who saw the band live got it right away. It's like, Oh, these guys are mm. idiots and they like to have a good time, but wow, the songs mm. are good. And, and they work really hard, obviously on, on the harmonies and things. So, you know, I think we were, we were never uh, an easy band to explain uh, mm. it was just kind of like uh, people had to see us live to get it. That must've been quite a tricky position because it's almost like you're, you know, you're wanting to grow. You're wanting to, you know, you're almost having to wait for people to figure it out for themselves. Well, sure. Uh, and it maybe made it a little harder for us in the beginning, but a as a result, we were a lot truer to who we were. We never tried to, eliminate anything about the way we communicate or the way we relate to each other we ended up it ended up in the long run being a lot better because um we were constantly sort of defying people's expectations of the band um mm -hmm. we were always just kind of true to who we were and that that's so great i mean you you, you hear people say that but you know, you, you can really see with you that, you know, you, you had to be, I think that's, you know, I think about some of my favorite bands and that th there are these stories where people didn't take them necessarily seriously up until a certain point. And it makes me wonder, you must learn a lot about yourself in, in those times. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, when I look back at those early performances and certainly early album covers and stuff. I think, well, I, I wish we'd maybe taken ourselves a little bit more seriously. <laughs> we should right. have may, right. maybe hired a stylist or something, but, um, <laughs> you know, we were, we were comfortable in our own skin then. Did the band come first and what kind of jobs were you, were you working around then? Oh God, I, I did a million jobs. Um, I probably right before the band, I worked in a um, indie record shop for a while, and uh, which is a very cool job for a musician to have. Um, but I left that to go work the phones um, at the Canadian uh, version of the the AAA. I don't know if you have a British automobile association, um, but I worked at the Canadian Automobile Association answering the phones for emergency road service. So when people were broke down on the side of the road or ran out of gas or their car wouldn't start, I was the, uh, I was, I took the call and dispatched, dispatched the, uh, tow truck. And that was all, all times of night, was it? 
Yeah. Um, I, I worked, uh, the day shift actually. Um, but yeah, right. it was 24 hour emergency road service. That, that must've been quite intense at times. Um, it actually, I really learned the city because, you know, this was pre, uh, really kind of, I know the internet existed, but not everybody was using it. We had a massive map of the city with different colored lights on it to indicate congestion that was all just controlled at a manual switchboard. And I, I had a physical... (laughs) Uh, map book at my desk and I would have to look up where the person was and give the tow truck driver the Pearly's map book coordinates and um, I learned a lot about the city and I I learned a lot you know it's funny because people would call and say ah my my car won't start I'm on Eglinton and and I'd say well are you in the eastbound or the westbound lanes and they'd say well that depends on which way you're coming from doesn't it now genius <laughs> I'd say well uh, actually no sir north is a global constant it's not the direction of your hood ornament <laughs> so, so you were speaking to a lot of pissed off people well yeah almost everyone I spoke to was pissed off because they were stuck they had blown a tire <laughs> or run out of gas in almost every case yeah. it was their fault but they wanted it to be my <laughs> fault really badly all deniability yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it makes me think, I feel like those are two uh, good skills for being in a touring band. One, being, you know, au fait with maps. And second of all, speaking to people who are pissed off, or at least diffusing situations. Yeah, absolutely. Those both went into the holster when it was time to start playing live. (laughs) I did everything. I I worked landscaping for a summer. Um, I worked at a printing studio. I... uh, my parents had no money when I was growing up. So if I wanted anything, I had to work a part-time job and earn my own money. So I started working, Mm. like I started delivering a paper route when I was 12. And, um, from the time I was 12 until I started working full-time in bare naked ladies, I had some job or the other working at a video rental store. Um, yeah, I, I did a lot of different jobs. I've uh, I've read about a, a job at Wendy's. Yeah, employee of the month, July 1985. <laughs> I, I was 15 yeah. at the time. <laughs> I quit while I was employee of the month because I realized there was nowhere else to go for a 15-year-old kid. <laughs> I'd achieved <laughs> the beat. pinnacle. Yeah, they weren't going to promote <laughs> me to manager. I was 15. I wasn't going to wait around till I was 18 to get the manager job. I took my plaque off the wall and left. <laughs> did you see the humor in that at the time, getting those jobs? And, you know, did, was, was, it, was it funny? Yeah, kind of. It was. I, I was, a, you know, I was a pretty ironic kid. And uh, I loved wearing the Wendy's uniform. And, and <laughs> I worked the front cash of Wendy's as a 15-year-old. Like in a not particularly uh, sweet neighborhood in in the the suburb of Toronto called Scarborough, where I grew up. And, uh, you know, there was an edge to it. And uh, Mm. I I kind of, uh, I embraced that. I embraced the ridiculousness of of working fast food. Did you learn quite quickly that, you know, if there was something that was going to happen in your life, you were kind of going to be the one to 
galvanize yourself. You were going to be the one to take it into your own hands and, and, and do it. Well, what I learned really quickly was if you ever are going to Wendy's, don't order the chili. Um, <laughs> but aside from that, yeah, I mean, I, I had to create a life for myself. There, there was nothing being handed to me and music mm. was so far and above everything else I tried to do. It's just, I would have moved mountains to make music my life. And I didn't feel that way about anything else. Um, mm. And so I, I just had to do it. I, I didn't, I couldn't see another life for myself. And that, you know, that's, that's advice I give to other people too, is like, if you can see yourself doing anything else, do that. But if you can't see yourself doing anything else, then you have to find a way to make music your life. Um, because if you can, it is so fulfilling and so rewarding, so engaging. It, it's, it's unlike anything else. I, I was really lucky in that way into my music career, you know, 20 plus years in, I got offered a job um, in my spare time hosting a television show um, called Ed's Up. In the premise yeah. of the show was I, I flew around to different locations and it was, you know, can the rock star hang with the blue collar workers and can I, am I, you know, can I do a normal job? And, um, I got to do 58 different jobs in three seasons of doing the show. So that was pretty incredible experience. Everything from crime scene cleanup to, uh, worked as a garbage man. I worked in a meat processing plant. I did three branches of the Canadian military. I like, I, I got to try a whole bunch of careers, mining, you know, and wow. a lot of the things were really interesting. Like I, I, I learned a ton and I really enjoyed relating to the people, but there wasn't one job out of 58 that at the end of the day, I thought, wow, this is better than being a guy in a rock band. <laughs> but being a guy in the rock band, and this comes up, up on this podcast a lot, is that, you know, there are so many jobs behind it. I mean, we, you know, I won't see the the admin that you do, you know, the driving around, the getting strings changed, figuring all that stuff out. Well, sure. Most of being in a rock band and certainly starting a rock band and starting touring most of it is the opposite of glamour but it's also it's such a formative period for any band it's it's where your bandmates become your family it's those hardships and those sacrifices that you all make together are what galvanize the band into knowing you know that making this music even getting on stage in this crappy club in this tiny town that we drove hours and hours through terrible traffic to get to, it all vanishes when you start playing music. And you're like, this is worth everything. Like, I don't care what this took. This is the greatest feeling in the world. When bands stay together for, for long periods of time with more or less the same members, I look at that in, in wonder. You know, it's, it, that, that is, that's its own beast. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's another, 
it's really difficult for anybody who hasn't spent a long time in a band to understand because it's not just the people you work with. Like you work with them and you create things with them and you perform with them and you live with them and you sleep with them and you eat with them and you travel with them. Like I've spent way more time with my bandmates than I have with my wife. You know, I started this band when I was 18 and I'm 50 now, Um, you know, and that's a hundred to 200 shows a year for 30 plus years. I thought you were going to say that's 100 or 200 dog years, but I think dog years (laughs) might even be more. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it would be and and that 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 is nuts i mean over lockdown you know i don't that everyone's been reflecting so much but have, have there been particular moments of your career you know speaking about this now that you've, you've really reflected on you know maybe in your early 20s or all of it yeah I, I mean you know the the lockdown was a real chance to take a step back and i have absolutely loved this gear down and uh this time to reflect and i've been with my family i've been up i have a a lake house that's three hours northeast of toronto and i've I've been here for 15 months and it's been paradise it's been totally amazing um but it's also made me really appreciate the fact that I get to do a job that I love to do. And there's so much that I miss about it. The couple of times we have gotten together and done, you know, we did a holiday special and we did a live streaming concert um, Mm. this spring and I loved it. Like it was so Mm. fun. And it was, it was so much of the parts of being in a band that that you take for granted when you've done it for a long time. When I think about what it is being in a band, I think about the shows, I think about the big audiences, I think about the travel. And doing these streaming events and these virtual shows, it was just hanging out with the guys for a couple of days and without the audience, without the kind of pomp and circumstance of it all, with zero glamour, just the hang and the performing music with guys I've played music with for three decades. And it was so fun. And it, it, it just illuminated that fact. It's like, oh yeah, this is amazing in and of itself. Even when we're not playing in amazing places and, and traveling to cool cities, it's like, it's just cool to play music with three guys. Has it been funny, you know, doing that in, in your native land, you know, where you're from? Yeah, actually, because most of our career for the last 25 years has been in America. Um, So usually when I'm home, I'm not working. And Mm. this pandemic has forced us all to really pivot and adapt and be working from home and collaborating Mm -hmm. via the Internet. And all of that has actually been really uh, invigorating and and fun it's it's breathed a whole new life into the way we work i didn't know how to use pro tools 15 months ago i didn't know how to edit in adobe premiere like i bought a bunch of gear and now i'm actually like super self-sufficient um brilliant that's kind of surprises me because you're into your video games aren't you 
Yeah. Well, I'm actually, I was a very much a video game kid up until the point when we started touring and then, then I became a big pinball nerd and now I collect pinball machines. That is cool. That is great. I don't know if it's Have cool, fav- but it is I great. I think it's cool. I think it's totally <laughs> cool. Uh, what, is it sort of a, a variety, like any one arm, one arm bandits or is it kind of strictly pinball? Strictly pinball. And as I look around the room, I have games from the late 70s all the way up to games that just came out a few months ago. I would say my sweet spot is like the early 80s, early solid state pinball machines. Um, The rarer and weirder, the better for me. Ace. You must have seen King of Kong. Is that what it's called? Yeah, I loved King of Kong. Amazing. Insane. I mean, and not the place you are right now, but your but your main family home is that in Scarborough? It's in Toronto now, just um, just downtown version of Scarborough. Yeah, is it funny going around those areas now and having more time to be at home and you know seeing corners that you know you have memories from when you were younger? Or well, actually, you know, when we went into lockdown, I went up to my lake house, and so I'm I'm like three hours away from Toronto, and I've been up here in this uh solitude for a year and a half and it's uh, wow it's really been beautiful so i'm i'm at a lake house i'm you know it the lakes freeze and and we uh walk on them in the winter time i was walking the dogs on the lake every day in the winter and uh now spring has sprung and it's beautiful walks through the forest and but it's quite isolated have you been uh i mean that sounds like a pretty cool place to listen back to mixes of the new record detour de france detour de force even <laughs> excuse me yes um yeah uh i actually recorded a bunch of my vocals up in the room that i'm recording this now which is my little pinball arcade slash um studio i did a bunch of the vocals Amazing. for detour de force up here and yeah this is where i first listened to the mixes I'm looking out at a pristine forest. Um, it's a, it's a pretty great place to unplug and just be creative. What a different world! I mean, you must have been to so many different studios and had, you know, ones that you prefer over others, and and you must you must have had so many different experiences in in studios that smell like fresh wood pine. <laughs> and now you got the real thing. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. We've been lucky. We've been at some of the nicest studios in the world and and work there and they're great like don't get me wrong working in a working in a top-notch studio is amazing not just for all the gear they have but uh there's amazing engineers that work there and it's it's really great for the creative process to not have to think about any of the technical aspects of recording and and they just happen around you but uh, the flip side of that is nice too when you kind of got a kludge uh, uh, results and 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 solutions and make it work based on the limited amount of gear that you have at your disposal. And I don't like it's a three hour drive for me to get to a music store where I could buy something I'm missing. So uh, right. I just got to make it work. And there's there's a creativity in in that aspect of it too. Absolutely. And that, that's something I think a lot about, um, as, as I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, these emer- emerging bands, emerging artists dealing with uh, what you have, because you can see how that makes you kind of forces you to use your imagination in a way that Absolutely. you might not have 
of otherwise. I mean, is is that something that you know you and the rest of the band have, have talked about throughout your career? Um, in terms of you know having so much at your disposal, if you so choose wish, but limiting yourself can almost kind of bring that out of you. Is that something that you've spoken about together? Oh, for sure. In 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 many aspects too. I mean, as as home studios got more and more advanced, I kind of backed away from it because mm-hmm. I feel like a really good song needs to be able to stand on its own without, I don't really love a fully produced demo, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I like to just record uh, a, an acoustic guitar part and sing a vocal on it. And then I know if the song's good and then the band can go in the studio and make a full production version of it. But if I make a full production mm-hmm. demo, I don't even know if the song's that great. I just got a great sounding demo but right. it's it's easy to to hide a weak song with a with a strong recording and I, and i read in an interview you were talking um a while ago about you know the idea of the you know the perfect song the best song you could write at that moment and being able to relinquish that for the idea that you know if you can write amazing bits and kind of keep on doing that you have a lifetime of songwriting and that 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 must be there must be a very funny thing to to be going through your head every day spinning around well you have to write a lot of songs before y- you start to drop the fear that your next song might not be the greatest song you've ever written you know it takes a long time like you Obviously, I I want all my songs to be great, but I've gotten to the point in my life where I'm I have enough um, confidence in myself as a writer to just forge ahead and keep mm-hmm. writing. Um, and I think as a young mm-hmm. writer, you spend too much time editing and too much time rewriting and trying to make every song your magnum opus and. I think it's more important to write more and just keep pushing ahead. And um, if you didn't nail it with the song, then I, I wouldn't pull that song apart and rewrite it. I'd just write another song. You mentioned mentioned earlier, you know, how bands these days, you know, and 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 your son is some something obviously you've been thinking about and chatting to him about. But it seems like you know, if if your first record isn't that successful. <laughs> It's hard to carry on, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, we we live in a world that's very uh, um, numbers driven, and and mm-hmm. with access to social media tools, it, like even I, I'm like, man, I've been in a band for since 1988, and when I put up a video, it gets like a couple thousand views, and some kid with a TikTok account is getting millions of views but based on singing seven seconds of somebody else's song so Mm, it's mm. it's can be strange and disheartening um but at the same time it's like it's pretty amazing that those tools are out there um and Mm -hmm. and I, i when i think of the access my son has to directly reach his fan base i think that's that's pretty exciting do you think that fan bases and audiences and audience groups, uh, do you think they're more separated now than they were in the early 90s from where you're standing? Well, 
there's a, the social media aspect of it is weird. Um, because when I grew up and I was a, a fan of whatever, I, I was a big Peter Gabriel fan. Um, Great. I, I used to pour over those liner notes and the few photographs that might've been included with the record, or maybe I, uh, saw them in magazines and I, and I, I used to wonder, like, wonder what that recording process was like. And I listened to the records over and over again. And I tried to imagine what the, the production, uh, was like. And now people have an expectation that they can just have access to all of that information. And I think it's strange. Like it's, it's removed some of the wonder that I think was really important about, uh, you know, really falling in love with an artist was not knowing everything about them. Um, and, and putting yourself into that situation. I think we've lost a bit of that. Um, and, uh, you know, I know things change and the world changes and the way we relate to each other changes, but I think, there was something to be said for having to really seek out music by the artists you loved and, and try to tease out information about them. And now we just hit click and we get their entire catalog and the catalogs of everyone they've ever worked with and all the information about, and videos of the recording sessions and live performances and alternate performances of everything on the record. And uh, I don't know, I think in this, uh, massively over, uh, supplied market. I think we've lost a little something of the nuance of what a great record can really be. There is that element of, you know, fighting to like a record. I remember getting a, a CD or, you know, my older brother lending me a CD and not really liking it at first, but thinking, well, this is the one he's lent me. So I'm going to listen to it until I do. <laughs> Yeah, or maybe it's an artist you loved and they've put out a new record and you're shocked that you don't love it right away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think in today's society, people will go, oh, I hate the new record and maybe go on social media and say, yeah, the new record sucks and then move on. Whereas when I got a new record and it was by a band I loved and I didn't love the new record, I listened to it again because I that band had built loyalty with me and I you had want to grow with them. Yeah. I had an emotional connection to them. Yeah. And so I ended up listening to the record and, and you end up liking it or, or you don't. So you move on, <laughs> you know, there was, there was, there was a point where I moved on from Peter Gabriel and I, you know, I, it never would have occurred to me to, to go to his front lawn and say, Hey, I think your new record sucks. <laughs> You know, why don't you do stuff that's more like the old stuff that I like? I'm, I'm going to wait for your tweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I feel that's so interesting because, you know, we're talking about the fan side of that. I feel like on the artist side of that, that is part of the engineering there. You know, through the 90s, throughout your career, there is that understanding that, you know, we could do something a bit left field than what we're used to. Yeah. And, you know, there is kind of this... I mean, you tell me, I feel like there might've been that vibe where you're like, you know, people, people are going to come with us. You know, we're holding, we, people will hold our hands with this. Yeah. I, I, I think it's a, 
it's a mistake for any artist to try to make music for their audience. You got to make music that interests you and hopefully people will find it interesting. But it's the it's the tail wagging mm-hmm. the dog if you try to do it the other way around. And you know, I make every record knowing that I'm going to lose some fans of my last record, but hopefully I'm going to gain some fans of my new record. And if I try to make records for people that liked my old records, then that would feel pretty stagnant. Have you had some darker periods of time? Have you had some kind of, you know, times of confusion within yourself, you know, on, on this subject? No, I've been supremely uh, confident and uh, uh, completely realized my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I, uh, full full force <laughs> yeah of course of course uh you know th- there were stressful times when um you know when you make a follow-up record to a really successful record it's not just about oh well i want to outdo myself and i want to make another great record it's oh i've got 42 crew like staff to feed now right. you know we've got an right. arena touring crew and i've got a family and i've got a record company depending on me and injecting money into this and everyone is saying just do your thing we trust you you know you're we love what you do and you're sitting there sweating like i'm trying to do my thing but there's an awful lot riding on this now that wasn't when i was 26 i mean so, what's got you through those times um well the support of the band the support of my family uh you know and the support of lots of people in the record company management like Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. ultimately it's still really stressful you know and it takes a long time to learn to trust yourself it takes a really long time to just be confident and it a number one single doesn't make you trust yourself it doesn't make you not insecure anymore (laughs) you know right um that's interesting yeah it's it's great and it makes you feel great but i think everybody has a lot of personal work they have to do I, i don't think anybody gets into the performing arts without some large measure of insecurity and the adulation of a crowd doesn't change that insecurity. So at some point you need to address um, your own shortcomings and your own tendencies to sell yourself short and um, mistrust your instincts. And, you know, for me, the simple answer was loads and loads of therapy. And you, you learn a ton about yourself and you, you become more grateful you become more confident you become uh more free in your thinking and uh mm-hmm. but it's a long process it and it's certainly success solves exactly none of the the <laughs> emotional struggles <laughs> that a person has and it may in fact amplify most of them are you a fan of the go-go's and have you seen that documentary that recently came out I am a fan and I have not seen the documentary, but I must now. It it is great. It's on Sky, at least here in the UK. And, and, you know, the the quote that really stuck out for me, and I've thought about it quite a lot, is um, 
one of them was saying that being really successful, they learned nothing. But when they went through the, you know, the, the, the more real times, let's say, that's when they learned things, you know, when things weren't necessarily just breezing. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and I think that's, that's true of any vocation, you know, struggle mm-hmm. teaches you things, mistakes, mm-hmm. failure is the greatest teacher. Mm. And, and I, I, th- I think it's wonderful because, you know, writing songs, being a songwriter, you're, you're giving yourself, you know, you're, you're, you're showing a, a vulnerable side to you. Yeah. Well, if you're doing it right, it's not easy. And it's, uh, there are songs that I still have trouble singing because they're, and when you when you tap into those emotionally vulnerable places, you don't heal that wound. You just really examine it, mm-hmm. you know. And and there's a lot of songs that I still have trouble performing because I think, oh well, I got that one right because it's yeah. really difficult to even sing. <laughs> um, so yeah. it's kind of a catch twenty two. If you if you do it well, it's, um, it's doubly painful when you got to perform it again. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Do you, you can see the kind of tendency for someone to kind of be, you know, a, a stage persona and then be someone different off stage. And, you know, I don't mean that in any derivative or derogatory way. I feel like, you know, a lot of artists and actors and comedians, you know, that's something that that, art, that artists do. Is, is that something that you do? Is that something that you, that you have done? I, I think I'm just a more amplified version of my true self when I'm on stage and, and when I'm performing. But I've seen so many performers do a stage persona and do it really, really well. Mm. Um, but ultimately, like if you're a writer and 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 you're performing, even your stage persona is it's a performance. It's an aspect of yourself. And I don't think you can detach yourself from what you're doing emotionally, regardless mm. of whether you couch that in some sort of detached persona. I mean, you're still, uh, yeah. you're still illuminating something about your emotions. And with this new record, it's, you say it's the, the best record, the best songs that you've written for, for 30 years. You feel that in your bones, do you? I, I have never felt so, um, free and confident about, um, uh, a group of songs and a record as a whole. Um, but I, I think that's just part of the process of getting, getting more comfortable in my own skin. And you, when you lose the expectations of, uh, whether it's, you know, chart positions or sales figures or like, I'm fairly confident we are not going to sell a lot of records and we are not going to have a hit single. It's just, I'm a 50 year old guy who's been in the music business for 
30 plus years. It's very unlikely to happen. Um, look at the top of the charts. It, it doesn't look like us. It's young, incredibly talented, beautiful uh, artists. And we don't fit that mold. You know, if, if we went in to make this record uh, with the expectation that we were going to capture the modern zeitgeist and, you know, we were going to have another hit single like like we did in the late 90s and early 2000s, we'd be setting ourselves up for failure. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we're really lucky. We've been doing this a long time. We have a huge audience and we can just make a record that we like and then go out and tour it. And it's really rewarding. And I, I, you're lifers. Yeah. We're lifers, man. We, we, we're not a, uh, we're not a pop band. We're a career band. There aren't that many of you out there. Yeah, it's true. It's, uh, it's a rarefied, uh, group that have been doing it for as long as we've been doing it and particularly doing it at the level that we still get to do it, you know, to be, mm-hmm. hopefully fingers crossed, hopefully we don't, uh, ha- have a, a fourth wave, but, uh, you know, we're coming back to the UK to play a sold out Royal Albert hall at the end of October. And that is nuts. That is a pretty nuts. amazing thing. Incredible. And that's a full Euro tour. And please tell me, you know, you're going to have to call it the Tour de France. You know, <laughs> to, you, know, you don't have to take my advice. But Yeah, currently <laughs> our detour de France has zero dates. But I, I think we've got about a dozen in the UK. That's ace. And, you know, what's your relationship with the, with the UK like? Because, you know, it's funny being, you know, I'm from the outskirts of London. So every kind of US band or you know, banned from Canada, there is always a thing about, there seems to be a thing about the UK, unsurprisingly, given the, given the history, but what's your kind of personal um, relationship with the UK? Well, it's always had some of our favorite audiences and shows and from, from playing early festivals for us, you know, doing the Glastonbury festival in the um, early to mid nineties and, uh, the Reading Festival and uh, Tea in the Park. And um, the festival culture there was so incredible when it wasn't off the ground at all um, in North America. Um, so we always really admired that. But just the audiences themselves, um, you know, we kept coming back to the UK for many, many years, even when it was either a losing proposition or when we started to do better, like barely a break even tour for us to tour in the UK. It's so expensive for us to come over there, but we just kept coming back because the audiences are amazing and we had an incredible time. We were selling out arenas in North America and coming over to play clubs in the UK just because it was a blast. Great. I mean, when you say Glastonbury in the nineties, my heart just swelled. You know, I have this huge connection to Reading and I just wonder if, you know, do you have any moments? Do you have any stories from Reading or Glastonbury? Oh, so, so many. I remember um, one time we were, uh, we were playing in the acoustic tent at Glastonbury. And, th- you know, the Sunday night uh, is always a surprise guest on the main stage. And mm. the, the Thursday and Friday night, 
Um, this would have been 94 or something. I'd have to check the date, but the Thursday and Friday night Prince had played in Manchester and then London. And so we were pretty certain that the Sunday night surprise guest was going to be Prince. And we had played the acoustic tent on the Saturday with, I think, Jonathan Richmond, and Great. I can't can't remember who else. Great gig. But then we had to go play some sort of flower festival in Wales. We were doing like a live <laughs> BBC broadcast uh, in the morning in Wales, uh, in Cardiff. And Great. so we said to the promoters, like, if we hold our passes, can we drive back to Glastonbury and get back on site to see the special guests on the Sunday night? Because we were certain it was going to be Prince. Mm -hmm. So we raced back uh, after doing this Cardiff um, uh, BBC gig. We raced back to the outskirts of the Glastonbury site. And I remember being way in the distance. Like we were just on the outskirts of the far fields. And we opened the door of the van and we could hear purple rain. And we just oh, wow. started jumping fences, jumping fences and getting closer and closer to the stage, running, 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 running. And it wasn't until we got within sight of the stage, we realized that's Tom Jones playing purple rain. <laughs> So Tom Jones was and the secret guest. <laughs> we just come from Wales. We were running through fields. We're like, it's fucking Tom Jones. And then we went, wait a minute. That's even better. <laughs> so we that made our so way good. there. And uh, it was just an incredible experience. That's so much fun. Were you, were you, you know, you were enjoying yourself full flow in those kinds of tours, were you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We we were maniacs. We we would take every show we could get. We, Brilliant. you know, and especially in the UK, if we got offered uh, a BBC uh, performance, we were doing it, mm -hmm. even if it meant driving overnight to perform in a parking lot in Cardiff on a Sunday morning. We were taking it. Brilliant, and and that didn't feel, and that you know, playing stadiums in the US, did that feel like a you know, I'm going to say it, did it feel like a step down? I mean, was there that kind of, I mean, clearly, you know, now saying, saying you're well up for it. And I, I, I'm i not sure a lot of bands would, would do that, you know, if the next continent across there were getting treated like kings. Yeah, well, I guess we were fortunate because we were doing so well in North America that we could afford to go mm. and play much smaller venues. We didn't need to make money because we'd already made money in North America. And so we could follow our heart and go do great shows and try to mm. build an audience. Like if you just go, Oh, well, we're not famous there. So we're not going well, then you, you're not going to grow anywhere. Yeah. And you, you've always had a pretty positive story with the labels that you've been on in terms of the business side, in terms of that support side. I mean, you've never been ripped off. Uh, for the most part, we've had really good relationships professional relationships through the years um great you know it's difficult when with an album like stunt we you know we were the number one record at the label we sold i don't know 10 million copies close to of stunt and then when the 
attention shifts to another act, you're like, wait a minute, aren't we funding this other act that you're now supporting? <laughs> right. So yeah. those, those yeah. moments are difficult, but at the same time, it's like, it's a business and you, you get it on some level, you know? It's been so much fun hearing these stories, Ed. I mean, thanks so much for being so open to me. Oh, for sure. Thank you. It was nice talking to you. Just to end with, I mean, you know, looking back over the years and, and looking forward to, to to the future, I mean, do you think you've changed much over the years? I mean, of course you've grown, but in terms of the way that you play and do you, you know, you write songs and you communicate with the others in the band. Um, I mean, you mentioned, you said, you said earlier, and that, that really kind of hit a nail for me that, you know, it's a process. It's an ongoing process. Yeah. I mean, I like to think I'm a better writer now than I ever was. I like to think I'm a better performer. Um, I'm definitely a better person because I've worked hard on it. Um, but I think the superpower of this band has always been that we're fearless on stage. And part of that is being willing to screw up. And you can't you can't improvise on stage. Like we make up songs all the time. We, we have these long jams and improvisations. You can't do that if you're afraid of making a mistake. And mm -hmm. I, I think that's always been the superpower of this band is we don't care if we screw up. doesn't matter the size of the audience. Um, we know that people are rooting for us and, and, uh, mm -hmm. when, when you make a mistake, it's already gone. Yeah. Totally. There's that Miles Davis, Miles Davis quote. Uh, no such thing as a wrong note. It, it only matters what you play next. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I've seen so many performers that screw up and then they screw up the next 32 bars of the song because mm. they're pissed off that they made a mistake. <laughs> and if, if they just move on immediately, the mistake's gone. We can all relate to that, can't we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just want to like take those performers aside and say like you had the audience in the palm of your hand. Like they they didn't yeah. care you screwed up. Like yeah. You know, but yeah. people let it get to them and then it ruins the rest of the performance for them. And we we're, we're humans. You know, I work at a radio station that I love working at and you know, I fuck up all the time at work. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. and it's like you can't, Well, you're you not you trying if you don't make mistakes. Like you know, you're not pushing yourself if you don't screw up. I like that. I like that a lot. Thank you so much, Ed. That's really inspiring. All right. Cheers. So there he is, Ed Robertson. Thank you so much for tuning in to 101 Part-Time Jobs. If you haven't already, do subscribe and see you next week. Here's Cox Barra. I've been working all day for me, mate, on the side. Running around like a blue-ass fly. I've been working, yeah, I've been working all day for me, mate. This is a Mighty Moon Media Podcast. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. 
Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.